This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Welcome back to the show, everybody. I am super excited to talk with my old friend, Evan LaPointe, today. He is uh, one of the people I admire most for the way that he thinks about uh, problems in general. Um, he's built a couple of companies, sold one of them to Adobe, ran a team at Adobe for a while, um, left that, and now he started something new that uh, I think can be extremely beneficial to organizations all over. So Evan, how are you today, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, every time we talk, we get into these uh, really interesting kind of philosophical, but also kind of practical operational conversations. And I enjoy every single one of them. So um, one of the things I wanted to chat about today is just design teams and how a lot of companies are doing it wrong and why they're doing it wrong and then how they can do it better. And I think maybe a good place to start is like these common stereotypes of designers, developers, business people. You know, you've got the the designer diva and the developer who you know just wants to code in a dark room and the business person who only talks in spreadsheets and those three things in a lot of companies don't intersect very well. Um, so let's just chat about, I guess, a little bit about that and um, how we get to a high-functioning design team. Yeah, that's that's a good place to start for sure. Um, I mean, stereotypes, they I think in fairness to stereotypes, they often exist for reasons. Um, but sometimes those reasons are out of date. <laughs> and I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what we're up against these days, you know. And and as you know, I, I started this company because the world of business has obviously a physical side to it, which is all the stuff we're doing. We're doing design and we're writing code for these developers and we're doing financial forecasts and strategy with the business people. And that's those roles and responsibilities. But outside of that physical world or around at physical world, there's this really inaccessible metaphysical side to business. And maybe that's why the conversations we have kind of get to that philosophical state is metaphysical things like culture and engagement and intelligence and um, people just being into their jobs and being into work, being into each other and doing it well. That metaphysical world um, feels really inaccessible to a lot of people. And because of that, we just default back to these physical tools. Let's create roles and structure and responsibilities. And then the stereotypes fall out of that structure. So I started core to try to help people gain access to that metaphysical world to make it feel tangible. And we obviously have great tools in the physical world. You can use Photoshop to make a thing and you can use Adobe analytics to measure that thing that you made and its performance on a website and how many people bought something that looked at that thing that you made. But we have, pretty pathetic tools for the metaphysical side. I think the most sophisticated tools most people see are point to the emoji that tells me how you feel today. And right. we're trying to optimize culture on that. So as we get better at understanding what motivates people and understanding team cohesion and team intelligence and team performance, we can now feel safer redefining those stereotypes of a designer and a developer and a business person and realizing that really smart teams don't have this concept of independence where the stereotypes of each person are very different from each other. 
they've actually adopted a concept of interdependence where their work and what they care about is much more blended together. Mm -hmm. And there are some really interesting ways of looking at that and parsing that and helping people to understand it, how you actually bring people together and create that interdependence that's already there so that the designers and the developers don't feel like there's this hard line between their work, but instead they play together like a symphony. That's the, that's the objective. And when you have more comfort with the metaphysical world of business, then you can make that transition relatively easily. Yeah. And once teams realize that you know, they're each a wheel on the same car and they have to work together to get down the road um, and they all need each other to do that. And they, they get comfortable with that. And, and that's when we start to see them unlocking like you know, real, uh, real value and, and, and real ability to, to create great work. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so many great metaphors for this, you know, the, the wheel and the car thing, and you could even take it if you've ever watched people drive rally races, you know, the, the co-pilot is there reading out instructions. Yeah. Driver. And it's, it's, it's a lot like that too, that the instruct, it's not like the driver has their eyes closed or doesn't know the track. It's that there's this radical trust and interdependence and they're both using all kinds of sensory data together supplementing each other to do the thing and yeah. it's so coordinated and i think that's really the nature of intellectual work versus the nature of manufacturing work is really highlighted by that concept of independence versus interdependence mm-hmm. and yeah. say we shift to, uh, to to doing more brain work instead of hand work we like, as you said earlier, the tools that we use and the, and the models that we have and the way that we think about it hasn't evolved as fast as the work we're doing. Not even close. Yeah. And in fairness, it's really complicated. I mean, I spent nine years on this stuff and it was two or three years of studying psychology before I had the first feeling that this was actually becoming a useful tool that I could go into my day with I mean, two, two years of studying psychology. I was like, I still don't get it. I still, I can't, <laughs> I can't recognize it in real time fast enough to, to, to play the right note at the right time. Yeah. And after that epiphany or after that kind of muscle finally strengthened, then the last seven of those nine years has been using these tools in a progressively more sophisticated way, but it's, it's not, easy. It, it's really, really hard. And we have to leverage those who have gone before us. I had to leverage people and that went before me and proverbially stand on the shoulders of giants. And I'm, even though I'm not a giant, I hope at some point somebody can feel as though they were able to leverage my work and stand on my shoulders too. Yeah. So when we're thinking about, you know, the different roles in a team, you know, different companies divide those roles up different ways. And so we see, you know, different titles in different places and the way that, uh, or, or the, the tasks and responsibilities of those different titles can vary from place to place. So, you know, obviously that structure is something that um, is going to be very different, but the underlying principles of how humans interact with each other are generally the same and have been for a very long time, which is, I think, why you spent your 10,000 hours understanding psychology, right? So what, what are you seeing in terms of how an emphasis on understanding the people, the, the individuals doing the work, um, as opposed to the roles those individuals are in and what that kind of unlocks in terms of the team's capability? Yeah, there, there's a couple of things we should probably cover for the skeptics out there, and you're rightful to be a skeptic. 
um, psychology is an imperfect field, admittedly. And I think a lot of people use imperfect to mean worthless. Um, people see statistics about something like Myers-Briggs and how often you can test one day and get one result another day and get another result. Sure. And that is certainly true. That does happen. Uh, and, and also keeping in mind that Myers-Briggs at this point is an 80 year old technology. I was going to say it's generations old. Like, and we know a lot more now. Exactly. Uh, it was derived from the mind of Carl Jung who happened to be extraordinarily intelligent, which allowed him to get a lot of it really right but we didn't have computational statistics, neuroscience, or the MRI back then. Right. So even though we do have those things today, it's still imperfect, although it's way, way more sophisticated. And we have the ability to do things like take a person with a certain personality and watch their brain in real time and see how that brain is different than a brain with someone with another personality, which is super, super cool stuff to look at. Mm -hmm. But I want to just highlight before we get into understanding psychology is why I'm sold on it and why I think other people should get sold is we have to remember that Las Vegas was built on a fraction higher than 50% odds of being right. And we can't say that something that doesn't work 5% or 10% of the time is worthless if we've built one of the most elaborate and exorbitant cities on the planet's history um, on 51% rightness. So we're way above 51%, which means that you could open up a city much more elaborate and successful than Las Vegas using odds that we have with psychological data. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the first thing that I realized because my background is mostly in analytics. The company I sold to Adobe was in data and analytics and I'm a numbers guy. I like figuring out the truth, but what you realize being a numbers guy is that you have statistical probability, not statistical certainty with almost everything out there. And what you have with psycho psychology and psychological data, which is called psychometrics, um, you have way better than 51% odds that you're going to get pretty close to the, to the right answer with this stuff. So that's the first thing that needs to be said, but yeah, the, the tools that are out there allow us to understand human motivation. Uh, motivation varies based on what kind of state of mind a person is in, if they're in a hurry or if they're under stress or things like that. But base motivation is a, ver is a very important thing. And, and motivation varies across creativity. It varies across risk. It varies across enthusiasm and assertiveness. It varies across... Uh, agreeableness and compassion. And it, it varies dramatically. And I think when I hear people say the words human nature, I want to throw up these days because human <laughs> nature is, is absurd. We are so much more different than we are alike. And uh, as differently as people feel about cilantro, you can multiply that a billion times. That's how differently they feel about almost everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we develop the tools that help us to understand what these motivations are, unfortunately, the, the big five model helps us make that simple because there's only five. Um, we can sculpt teams and we can do great work. We can organize companies and teams so that their motivational vectors are pointed in precisely the same direction as our strategic vectors. 
And the great example of that is when an organization says we need to become more customer centric or more innovative, well, then we can look at the psychometrics data and we can see what are the compassion levels and openness levels of the team. And if the compassion is negative, <laughs> then we are not going to be customer centric no matter what we try to do strategically, incentive-wise, et cetera. Because that just isn't the people's internal motivation. Their internal motivation is running south while you're trying to power your ship north. Or maybe better put the other way around that you're running north while the ship is going south because you're going to go where the ship goes. (laughs) No matter how how, uh, fast or far you run, you're going to run out of ship and the ship's moving faster than you are. So we need to find people who are facing north the same direction we want to go. And that's the simplest way of thinking about it. And we're providing tools that help people do that. But, you know, conversations like this, you don't have to buy a tool. You can just learn a few skills and be way better off. And I think to make that real, and maybe if you want to talk about it, we could actually talk about the underlying neuroscience because that's the easiest tool for us to use where psychology is a really complex tool. I mean, it took me two years to get, to feel like, to feel like it was useful to me. The psychological, the neuroscientific tools that I've been able to stumble across are immediately useful. Yeah, and that might be a good line to draw. And uh, for those who don't know the big five, like you know the big five personality traits: of conscientiousness, agreeableness, neuroticism, openness, and extroversion. You know, and those are models that a lot of scientists and uh, people use to help define these things, right? And the, and the difference between psychology and the neuroscience. You know, you said that. Um, to, to use your, your cilantro thing, right? Like people have many, many opinions on cilantro and, but it's, you know, orders of magnitude more for the, their opinions and the way their psychology influences decision-making, but the underlying neuroscience is essentially the same across most people, unless there's some type of uh, something different about their, their brain, but most people, the neuroscience is essentially the same. So lizard brain, middle brain, high brain, however you want to think about it and where different types of decisions get made. That stuff is pretty standardized. So let's talk about the difference between those two things and then how neuroscience and understanding that neuroscience and how people make decisions helps us understand how to build better teams. Yeah, it's a great great distinction. It's kind of like if we look at the human leg, let's get away from the brain because there's a lot of complexity in the brain. If we've got a normal, you know, the average person's leg, uh, it, it has a, a handful of bones and they're the same in, in all the, all the legs that are, you know, kind of end up being built the same way. Uh, and it has quadriceps and it has hamstrings and it has calf muscles and muscles in the feet. And that means that legs are more or less the same. Most human legs are the same, yep. but they're not at all the same because Usain Bolt's human leg works a little differently than Evan LaPointe's human leg. (laughs) Yeah. And that's because that's not because he ran every day since he was a kid, which he did because if Evan LaPointe was running right next to him every day, since I was the same age and we ran every day next to each other, the same amount, I would be dead and he would be the, in, in the Olympics because I would have died trying to run as far or as fast as he could because it's not physiologically possible for me. Right. Now, I'd love to say that the world is fair and my leg has some other advantage that Usain Bolt's leg doesn't have, but unfortunately, that's probably not true. So, 
we can then take that idea because his leg has fast twitch muscle fiber and lots of it. And the nerves are set up in a way where it, it fires more efficiently. And there's so many things going on in the physiology of his leg that differentiate it from mine and yours. And that's where the similarities and differences of the leg begin. And similarly, that's where the physiological differences of the brain, even though we have the same structures, we have, uh, differences in strength and coordination and conductivity and things like that in the brain. And one of those, if we want to get dorky for a second about it, one of those attributes is called cortical thickness. So the outer part of each brain structure. So if we look at the hippocampus, you know, it's almost like a weirdly shaped tennis ball and the thickness of the tennis ball skin, uh, is the cortical thickness and the fuzz and then their gray matters inside of it. And the thick, the cortical thickness is associated with conductivity in the brain. So if you have a thin hippocampus, that's like having dial up internet in your hippocampus, which is responsible for memory. If you have a very thick one, which thick ones might be six times as thick as thin ones, you have broadband in mm -hmm. your memory and hippocampus. And that means a dramatic difference on the surface of human behavior of psychology. So we'll start with what's common and then we'll maybe splinter off into what's different. And to make neuroscience really simple, I try to talk people through a, a four step sequence and we don't have the visuals here. So I'll try to recreate the visuals because the visuals are funny and I'm not, but. Well, we could link them up in the notes. Yeah, we might do that. So, so the, the journey that sensory data goes on through the brain, your eyes see something, your ears hear something. The very first stop for the majority of sensory data is a structure in the limbic system, in the lizard brain, as you called it. The limbic system is a part of the brain that we share with myriad other species. It's a very prehistoric part of, the, part of any brain. And the thalamus is the part of the limbic system that the sensory data goes into. And the thalamus is really, really good at a lot of things. But one of those things is it's good at understanding whether or not something is worth paying attention to, whether it's novel or interesting. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't yet figured out if that novel thing is dangerous or delightful or colorful or any of that yet. It just kind of has this instinct of like, look over there, pay attention to that, listen carefully. Yeah. These are the things that catch motion that, you know, when you see something in your peripheral, it causes you to pay attention to that thing. Exactly. Mo motion and color and light are the things that catch this part of your brain's attention. That's right. That's exactly right. So if you've ever been to a conference, you know, you could literally go to the most boring conference about a new release of Microsoft office. And in the first 10 minutes, when the conference is getting ready to kick off with the keynote, they're going to play all sorts of rock and roll music and lasers are going to be flying across the sky and colorful abstract illustrations are going to be flying across the screen. And the reason that's happening is they're using a technique called priming. Priming tricks the thalamus into believing what's about to happen is interesting and worth paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And then an executive comes on and tells you about the new features of Outlook. So priming is super effective because the thalamus devours all those lasers and sounds it's glued to all that interestingness and the thalamus passes all that information to the amygdala. It's instantaneously, we're talking 
millisecond time frames here of how the brain processes this information. And if those colorful lasers and things are assessed as threatening, that's the amygdala going to work and saying, wait a second, that laser is making me really uncomfortable because I've got a really bad memory about a laser when I was a kid or, or I went, you know, I was it, I was a Navy SEAL and a laser pointing at me was a bad thing, right? Like there might be picks up on threat and it does it so fast that it's a, a subconscious thing. And then finally, uh, the amygdala is literally resting right on top of that hippocampus we talked about earlier. It's recalling memory. And think about the hippocampus as the librarian of the brain. When you record a new memory, the librarian takes that book in, puts it up on the shelf. When you see something, the librarian goes to all the shelves all across the, the memory centers of the brain, pulls off all the relevant books, opens them to all the relevant chapters and delivers all that contextual relevant information back to you so that you can start the decision-making process as a human being. And that's when we remember that we've been trained in something. We've seen that actor in another movie, all that connected relevant information is managed by the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Those three things happen completely involuntarily, completely instantaneously. And if we want to contextualize that to design and the work that you do to help companies out, it's really simple now to make the case for great design because great design is novel. It's interesting. It's worth paying attention to so that it is uh, the brain allows it to move on. It is non-threatening. So the brain does not respond with cortisol or norepinephrine and get you all jacked up in fight or flight syndrome. Mm -hmm. And the brain immediately understands whether that information and design is familiar and intuitive and in something that's intuitive is familiar. That's why it's intuitive. So, and there's other reasons that have to do with the fourth part of the brain, but we're not there yet because the fourth part of the brain is not instantaneous, nor is it involuntary. Right. So that's what we have to do is we have to kind of say our pre-flight checklist for everything we say, do, or show somebody has to be novel, interesting, worth paying attention to. It has to be non-threatening. It has to be familiar enough that that librarian can pull out a book that the person's like, oh yeah, I got this. I, I know how to connect this idea to something that's already going on somewhere in memory. Right. And where people fail is they they start off that Microsoft conference without all the lasers and all the lights. And they say things like, oh, the product should be able to sell itself. It's a good product and it helps people do things in ROI or whatever. But the thalamus looks at that presentation just like it looks when I drove through Nebraska driving back home last summer. We bought an Airstream and I drove it across the country. We were coming through Nebraska. Nebraska is 11 billion miles of corn. Right. And and it all looks the same. Yep. And you can drive for an hour and then realize that you haven't remembered a single thing for an entire mm -hmm. hour. It's yep. like you read a book and you read five pages and you, you, you go, well, my eyes literally covered every word. I went through the motion of reading, yet somehow I cannot remember a single word in these five pages. And that's because your thalamus was like, nope, not interesting. And how many interfaces and pitch decks and communication how much communication do we see that is corn level boring? And that yeah, the it's a lot. hardwired to turn off and it's hardwired to, to distract itself with anything else. 
So the case for design is not some Harvard Business Review person who's finally figured out how to tie it to ROI and compare a design-centered company to a non-design-centered company. That is called a late adopter of an idea to, to take that long to figure this one out. The case for design, great design, familiar, non-threatening, novel, interesting, beautiful, elegant, and familiar design is a part of the human brain called the thalamus that everyone has and uses completely involuntarily. Right. And great designers understand that bit of psychology and understand that when you're trying to guide someone through accomplishing a task, whether that be mundane, like sending an email or entering data in a spreadsheet or potentially exciting, like booking a vacation, um, we have to understand how to guide them through that process in a way that keeps them in that comfortable and um, entertained and interested state of mind so that they complete the task reliably. Exactly. Exactly right. There's a lot of other stuff out there that wants their attention. Yeah. Um, this, this is one of my favorite questions to ask people is, you know, what is the, the one button, the, the one interface element that's always present on <clears throat> every app that did um, you always have to think about when you're designing something for the web? It doesn't matter if it's uh, an entertainment site like YouTube or, you know, something crazy complicated like Tableau or, or SAP. You know, you, you've got one thing that's always there that you always have to be aware of. Do you know what it is? The close button. The close button. That's exactly <laughs> right. It's exactly right. Because there's a million other things that people can be doing with their time. And your biggest threat is that little X on the tab that when you lose their attention or you frustrate them or something starts to go and they get out of that mental zone, that close button's right there. And it always works. It always works the same way. It's safe. And it's an, it's an easy escape route. Exactly right. So for, for some people whose eyes may have glazed over with all the brain science stuff, when we think about how... Um, let, let, let's get them a little bit meta, right? So if we're thinking about, we've got good designers and they understand these concepts, but now to apply those same type of uh, brain science thinking to the metaphysical that we talked about earlier and how do we get the entire organization operating at that level? How do we create a superhuman design team where everyone is kind of thinking in that way that they're thinking about the brain science and about, you know, what's going to go through this customer's mind when they're using our product um, and get them functioning on all cylinders, get, you know, all four wheels turning the same direction at the same speed. I mean, uh, yeah, I, uh, so that brings us probably before we jump to the meta to that fourth brain structure. So we've gone from the thalamus to the amygdala to the hippocampus. The fourth is the prefrontal cortex. And right. that is where we evaluate logic and think creatively and do exploration and all sorts of interesting things. And that's the part above your eyeballs, right behind your forehead. That's right. And what's interesting about the prefrontal cortex is it's actually a highly unemotional part of the brain. The limbic system is extremely emotional. Novelty, threat, frustration, fear, unfamiliar things, they all result in chemicals being deposited into your bloodstream that make you feel a certain way. Uh, they're drugs. Feelings are drugs, not thoughts. Yep. 
And for example, if the amygdala detects a threat and deposits norepinephrine into your bloodstream, that's adrenaline, you will experience the effects of adrenaline for six to eight hours before your liver processes it out of your bloodstream. And the effects are sensitivity, frustration, irritability, combativeness, and a 30%, in some cases, reduction in cognitive ability. You become 30% dumber when you're angry. So if you work at a company like the ones you and I know, and they think it's culturally great by 10.30 a.m. to piss everybody in the entire company off by yelling at them about something that they did, you just made your entire company 30% stupider. And I'm sure that that 30% compounds so that when two 30% stupider people meet, then you actually end up with multiplication. <laughs> so right. yeah, it, it's not so great. Now, the prefrontal cortex is used voluntarily, not involuntarily. It's like a, a speakeasy with one of those little doors that you can see people's eyes through and you have to say the password and then they shut the thing and then you never hear from you again if you don't get let in. And if you do get let in, they crack the door open and then ask you for a few more things and progressively the door opens. And the chasm and the visual I was going to show, it's not like it goes thalamus, amygdala, hippocampus, prefrontal cortex. The gap between the hippocampus and a person engaging that prefrontal cortex, the smart part of the brain is gigantic. And the visual is it's like crossing the Delaware while the Delaware has security guards all around it. And the security guards can radio dragons. They can breathe fire onto your boat. Right. That's what it feels like to try to access another person's prefrontal cortex if they are willing or unwilling. And the, to answer your question, we have to get there to have a high functioning team, to have a high functioning organization. And that means we have to look at that psychologically in the recruiting process and in our teams, we have to bend things in the right direction. So it's more likely that people will use their prefrontal cortex in day-to-day -day conversations. It's more likely that they'll be curious and inquisitive and cooperative as opposed to incurious, pragmatic and competitive. So at a meta level, this is where culture and other things kind of enter the scene. Um, I think if there's only one tactical thing that a company could start doing that would fully reveal its, its uh, potential for intelligence is to just start using the phrase, what am I missing at the end of every declarative statement? Mm -hmm. And what that does, because you know, Socrates, I it's just the Socratic method, right? It, Socrates started a conversation like this in order to figure out what he didn't know, not to parade around what he did know. Right. And how many conversations in the corporate environment feel Socratic? Yeah, very few, because yeah. a lot of folks are, 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 they go into a meeting trying to show off what they know and trying to gain the favor of, of whoever is you know, above them in the hierarchy, as opposed to going in trying to expand the knowledge of the team um, and, and try to understand you know, what are the things that we need to be learning about. That's right. And I, I, I talk to people about this and I mean, you wouldn't believe I'll just round down for fun. Let's just say half of the people that I talk to about this one tactical idea say, I could never say, what am I missing in front of my boss? He'll think I don't know what I'm doing, <laughs> which is kind of like that idea of, you know, as long as you keep your mouth shut, it's better to keep your mouth shut and have them wonder if you don't know what you're talking about 
versus opening it and make them certain you don't, you don't know. Right? Yeah. 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 And that's where the culture comes in is we have to start. If you're a leader and you know, you're a leader listening to this, you have to start by setting an example that being Socratic is the way we know that you're good and being anti-Socratic or autocratic or whatever by not being inquisitive, not being open to what you're missing is a guarantee that you don't know what you're doing because of the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The Dunning-Kruger effect tells us that people who know a, a little about something are very confident about that thing, that they know everything. And then as they learn a little bit more, they start to go on this journey of doubt, like, whoa, this is way more complicated than I thought. Mm -hmm. So even the experts, they don't return to that kind of cocksure confidence that you see in the amateur. They never get back to that peak of confidence there. If you were to chart it out, it's the spike where people have low confidence and then this big U-shaped dip. And then it starts coming back up as you get your 10,000 hours in and this, the peak on the right side is not as high as the peak on the left side because you, you realize it's complicated. There's still things I don't know. You'll never hear a, a true expert say, like, I know everything about this. <laughs> you know, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the sound of an amateur. That's the mating call of an amateur. Right. And, and, and just to be clear, we're charting confidence versus competence. And the confidence never elevate, never gets back to where it was when you had low competence as your competence grows. It's right. not helpful that those two words are so, so similar sounding. Yeah, exactly right. And that, <laughs> that's what you got exactly right. It's that your peak of confidence is not when you are the best. It's when you're right. the worst. Right. And you get more confidence again, but it never gets back to that ridiculous level where you're almost reckless with your confidence. Yeah. These are the know enough to be dangerous people. Yeah. And, and again, that's the sign of an amateur, a person who's, who's afraid to ask what they're missing. You can be absolutely sure that that person is missing something really big and they're afraid to find out what it is. Not that they're not missing something. Right. So that's the tactic. And if you can get that tactic in place, you go back to your question. I know we've gotten a few minutes away from it by, at this point, but if we can remember the question of the high functioning team that's working well together, sharing this intelligence, that the intelligence of the team is multiplying when they come together instead of dividing when they come together. It's really that question alone that does it to say, hey, Jay, you know, I've learned a lot about neuroscience. Here's what I've learned. Here's these four things. What am I missing? And you might say, well, that's pretty cool. But I read this thing a couple of weeks ago about this other thing. And you might want to factor that into your model. And I go, man, yeah, that's, that's a whole other element that wasn't a part of the model. And now it is. And now the model's better. So both of us, you just absorbed everything I had to offer and I absorbed something you have to offer. And both of us are now equally intelligent, which is more intelligent than either of us walked in the room being. Right. And so if we circle back to the, the three people who we had in the room the first time around, like the designer, the developer, and the business person, if the designer is going to the developer and the business person and say, here's what I think about how to solve this problem or how we should do this thing, you know, what am I missing? That opens the opportunity for the developer to say, well, technically, 
we can't do it because of this or that, or we could do it this faster way because of this or that. And the business person to also add their thoughts to the conversation. And now automatically you've advanced that idea threefold in the span of 10 sentences, as opposed to someone coming in and trying to defend their ideas because they know the best way to, to design something or the best way to structure the database. And then you're in an argument for the next hour. Mm-hmm. By that one, that one phrase. And I've, we've been using that at Nine Labs with tremendous success since you and I first talked about it years ago. And it's something that, you know, that we advocate for, um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. <laughs> I mean, it's remarkable, really. Like once you start using it, sometimes you forget about it and you take it for granted. But if you ever really take a step back and go, wait, we just had a conversation where we used that tool over and over and over again. Man, that was a really good conversation. And right. what's cool is, if anybody feels like you're missing something and they have any faith that you're about to ask them what, what you're missing, they're just going to wait and then enthusiastically engage and say, okay, I've got a couple ideas and then know that that door is open. But if they know you're missing something and they don't think you're going to ask that, then they're sitting over there tapping their foot, waiting to talk, not hearing what you have to say. And maybe they will tell you what you're missing. And in which case you'll probably all get your spears out and start poking holes in each other. Uh, mm-hmm. Or you know, just feel like what's the point in even saying it and every time we self-censor the entire group gets dumber and that's the you know i'm writing this book called superhuman intelligence the subtitle is how any team can achieve genius and why most don't and this is the thesis of the book that consensus or harmonious conversation where we will only say the things that we think will go well we self-censor What that means is that a group of five people who are all self-censoring, the IQ of that group is a fraction of the IQ of any member of the group. So every decision the group make will be inferior to letting any one of the members flip a coin, (laughs) basically. And that's where you end up with hyper, hyper unintelligent groups of people because reductive intelligence, this kind of anti-Socratic intelligence, it is... It's not just not as smart as it could be. It's less intelligent than anybody in the room. And that's a super dangerous phenomenon. Right. And that's the underlying reason why a lot of teams, um, to the subtitle of your book, most don't, um, why a lot of teams um, struggle to produce anything of value. Uh, Yeah, unquestionably. Because, um, you know, one of the things you and I've talked about in the past is like streamlining design and having a better understanding of how to move quickly and what to pick as projects. And it's a great subject to look at through this lens we're talking about right now, which is the best way to get faster is to have way more ideas, right? And especially with product management. Which is counterintuitive. Most people would shut that down and say, well, no, we need to focus. That's right. They say we have more than we can do already, and I and I would point out the fact that if we if we brainstorm about all the things that a company could be doing, and then we circled all the things on that list that they should be doing, almost none of the things that we are doing are things we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And we can only figure out what we should be doing if we think about lots and lots of options. You know, choosing what to build next and how to how to coordinate a team is not like choosing where to go to lunch. 
it's, it's a lot more important than that. And what teams do is like, well, what, what can we do next? What's the low hanging fruit? Well, I got news for you. Trees are not conveyor belts that bring the high hanging fruit down after you pick the low hanging fruit. So anybody with a ladder is going to run circles around you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just, that's the, that's the, a great way of kind of contextualizing this idea is to realize that we have to have bigger conversations that are more complete thinking. We can then lay out all sorts of possibilities and now get in the mode of choosing the best choices among all those possibilities. Then we get clarity and certainty and then we become hyper-efficient because we're sure we're doing the right things. Right. And then once we've sorted out um, how these teams are going to function together, and even if it's just adding, what am I missing? And once we've, we've got a better handle on the metaphysical side of it, then we can make better use of the physical tools that we have. All these systems and, and software and analytics and all the different tools at our disposal to make better decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And again, when you assess how healthy your company is and how, how smoothly you move, you'll realize that a lot of the tools you have have been like duct taped to the wall as opposed to properly implemented. Yep. And you'll realize that the tools themselves are actually getting in the way and the integrations between the tools are getting in the way and the process is getting in the way uh, when tools and process are supposed to be helping. Right. And those, those, expedient implementations and choices, you know, kind of go back to what we were saying that if we're asking what we're missing, we can fill up that whiteboard with lots of ideas and do things well from the beginning. You know, I, I, um, I tweeted today something that's actually kind of relevant funny now that I said, great teams are paying for the future and bad teams are paying for the past. And that's what <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. We see great teams have this really clear sense of where they're going and they're building the future. They're literally paying people and tooling and, and keeping the lights on paying the electrical bill to make the future. They're paying to buy the future mm -hmm. and bad teams have created such a mess in the past and are still creating messes right now that all that investment that could be in the future is something they're buying to fix all the mistakes and clean up the messes of the past. And even those cleanup efforts are, are usually fairly incomplete. Right. This is where we hear about things like technical debt and redesigns and all these things, as opposed to, to a future forward thought about, you know, how are we going to work together to create something, create some value that has not yet been created. Yeah. And that can feel very inaccessible to people, you know, Jumping that gap from like, well, we're underneath all this technical debt. It would, sure would be nice if we were company XYZ and we could just build the future all the time, but that's not our reality. And then boom, we've just given ourselves permission to, to not try. And I, I just tell people, sometimes I feel like a corporate oncologist. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I could parallel a couple of conversations. So I, I know people at you know, a couple of the, the major hotel chains. And I've also had conversations with people at newer organizations like Airbnb. Uh, and the news that I share with the legacy companies is Airbnb also has technical debt. They also deal with some of these same problems. They're just dealing with these problems in a healthier way. And that's why they're moving faster. Well, that's, they, that's absolutely true. And, I, and, and some the reason I came up with corporate oncology is somebody 
on um on twitter also has said to me one time you know you how why do you try to fix cultures you'll never be done right and i said well that's like asking why oncologists try to remove cancer they'll never succeed they'll never be done there will never be no cancer right the field of oncology exists because humans would prefer to have the minimum amount of cancer as opposed to the maximum amount of cancer Mm -hmm. and what airbnb does it does have technical debt and it has not given up it is going to the doctor and it is having that technical debt removed and radiated and the companies that have it they actually have it accumulating because they are not going to the doctor at all because there's they've got that same attitude of hopelessness Mm -hmm. what's the point in even trying it'll never be better it can seem like an insurmountable problem and you know, another way, another place we're seeing this is in, in banks between like the legacy banks and the challenger banks. You, know, you look at you know, any of these kind of fresh upstart banks and they're doing things in interesting ways, right? So like Bank Mercury is going after just startups. And one of the things that they're doing is including like treasury management and um, so forecasting and some basic financial tools that young companies need or arguably that all companies need in your basic bank service, as opposed to having to you know, go to Chase or Bank of America or whoever, and then find something, some accounting firm to provide that for you or whatever. You know, they're, they're thinking about the problem in a new way. They're not just trying to you know, put lipstick on the pig or, or, or repaint the field. You know, they're actually reinventing what it means to provide a certain type of service to a certain type of customer, which comes from, what am I missing? which comes from a Socratic culture of trying to understand things from more than one angle. It doesn't come like, who was it that said you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created it? You know, we see that in so many organizations. They just don't, they just haven't gotten comfortable with the fact that they need to be comfortable with what they don't know. And they need to ask what they don't know so they can learn and they can deal with it. And I'll, I'll ratchet the discomfort up and say, you can't fix problems with the same people that created them. And that's not to say we need to fire the people. It's just to say it's a hell of a lot easier to think differently if we add other thinkers to the mix. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I've seen people try to take really conservative people psychologically conservative people and say, we really want this person to start thinking more, more innovatively. Let's put them through design thinking courses and let's give them goals around innovation. And then they ask questions like, well, what, what are the five steps of innovation? And you go, Oh God. Right. Like, (laughs) and it's, it's not that they're not wonderful people. They're just wonderful at something else. And when you want to become more innovative, creative, free thinking, risk tolerant, compassionate, et cetera, you are 1 trillion times better off going and finding a person that all that stuff comes naturally to, and they have a long track record of doing it. than you are trying to transform people. Right. And, and, And you don't, and again, I want to highlight, you don't have to get rid of people. Let's say you have a team of five people and everybody's very conservative. They're likely to be the ones who don't go to the doctor because 
they struggle with that feeling of hopelessness. Right. Go find a person who has a long history of being a doctor and then add them as a sixth person, whether that's a contract or a full-time hire, add their voice to the team, use their past as credibility as to why that voice should be listened to when people are asking what they're missing. And they will inspire that team to think differently and they will generate the kinds of ideas you're looking to generate. It is absurd to watch teams try to transform their neuroscientific physiology in a matter of weeks or months, trying to do the things that other people are built to do. Right. In other words, it just doesn't work. And people get so offended by that. And it's just, it's not meant to be offensive. It is not meant to be offensive that gravity exists. <laughs> it's not. Right. right. People can change. But again, if you want to become innovative tomorrow, you can. Go find a super creative, innovative person and add their voice to the dialogue and you will be more innovative tomorrow. And if you don't go find that person and you try to become more innovative, you will become more innovative in 36 months by a little bit. Right. Versus massively more innovative in 24 hours by a lot. Right. I think that's really what drove me to start core is how intentional we can be about this. And we graduate fifth grade knowing every state capital. And at no point in our education, unless we pursue a neuroscience or psychology or sociology degree, do we ever learn how other human beings work? And that's, it's, it's not like I want us to not know state capitals, but I would like us to know how other human beings work a little bit better than we do today. We, we don't receive one modicum of, of education on this. So we go through life thinking human nature, we're all the same. doesn't matter who we hire. We'll just go to a design class and suddenly we'll turn into Johnny Ive. No, Johnny Ive is Johnny Ive. Right. You can't learn to be Steve Jobs. That's it, just how it is. That's just how it is. And nor, yeah. and nor should you want to because everybody's <laughs> got a different role to play and there is so much value in that trait that you mentioned in the big five earlier of conscientiousness, the want to create process, the want to create order and structure and, and uh, be able to do a, a dependable repetitive motion. That is an unbelievably valuable thing that a open person who's low in conscientiousness absolutely sucks at. But right. then a situation like in your banking example calls for a reimagining the roles flip. And conscientiousness is now a risk instead of an asset. And openness is now an asset instead of a risk. So the, the takeaway, the one big takeaway, I, I'm, I'm going to answer this for you because I know what your, your answer is, is, is what are we missing? That's the one thing, right? <laughs> so what's, what, what other things do you think um, a listener can do to start being more effective and to start getting their team to what you describe. And, and, and we've been talking to people about being a superhuman design team. Is it okay if I give you two things? Yeah. So the first thing is write your mission statement down on a piece of paper and then set that piece of paper on fire because mission statements are also hundred year old technology that is completely inadequate for today's understanding of a company's purpose. 
Um, I think we can mangle the definition of mission enough to make it work again. But I also think at a certain point, there's so much mud on something that it's easier to just throw it away. And mission is that first concept. And what you're going to replace it with is a concept called role. And unfortunately, the book's not out yet, so I can't reference it, but I am, I am writing about it in this book. Um, your role is the role you play in the world. It's finishing the sentence, the world is really glad Nine Labs exists because. And the, the reason we, we talk about it that way is because we want the first two, world, two, two words of our mission, our definition of purpose, if you will, to be about them, not about us. Every business exists at the world's pleasure and the world isn't that happy with how we're doing very much. In fact, the world is pretty displeased with our attempts at understanding them and what they want and why they're glad we exist. And we might be really good at it for a while and we might lose our way and we might find our way again. And understanding our role makes it much easier for people to have a conversation about what they're missing. If we know that the world is really glad that nine labs exists for a specific set of reasons. Now we can talk about, well, let's grade ourselves in fulfilling that role. How are we doing? A mission is a narcissistic description of supply without any regard given to demand, right? Economics 101, supply and demand. Yep. Our mission to be the number one chocolate chip chicken wing factory in the United States of America. That has zero demand, which means you do not have a business. So if you have a role, you do have a business. Warby Parker, people, the world is glad Warby Parker exists because you shouldn't have to pay $1,000 to have glasses that don't make you look like a dork. And they created a low-cost, mass-manufactured alternative for extremely good-looking glasses that were on par with what you used to have to spend a gazillion dollars to, to have. And I'm not a person who's a lifelong glasses wearer, so I don't know what the nuanced parts of what I've just said are, is missing. But I do know that the world is really glad Warby Parker exists. And I do mm -hmm. know that financially speaking, we can see that reflected in Warby Parker's growth and success as a business. So the more interesting your role is, it's very likely the more interesting the economic outcomes of your business are too. And the more boring or weird or unexpected your role is, again, I would expect to see that that means you might be missing the market or the market's not that glad you exist. So that's kind of the first thing to do as a team, figure out what part of the world is glad you exist, how much of that world knows you exist, what problems they have, what emotions are associated with those problems, what you do and how it fixes those emotional and operational gaps, creates value for them. And then you go to market by saying, the world is glad we exist. Here are five examples of customers that are glad we exist. Here's what happens when we work together. And that's pretty easy way to go to market versus whatever we do today. Mm -hmm. And what you've just described is um, the, the basis of a value proposition workshop, which is understanding the customers and the need first, and then understanding how you can solve something for that customer, whether that's eliminating a pain or creating a gain in their life. Like that's the, the fundamental tenet of the value proposition work. Yeah. And I mean, there's no greater data source for innovation than compassion. And, I, and I'm glad that you referenced that work because 
I think what people miss is that that work feels to them like an operational motion to discover a specific set of answers. No, that work reveals the purpose of the whole company. Right. Everything. So it's not about differentiation, unique offering, those kinds of things. That's, that's the very tactical, very downstream effect of figuring this stuff out and understanding your role. Role is an interesting thing because when we look at the psychological layer of the business, we can see alignment between the purpose individuals feel and the obligation of role that the company should feel. And if those are in alignment, that's probably going to be a really good employee. So if, if the role of the company is to help reduce suffering or inefficiency or pain or create organization or structure or clarity or whatever it is for whatever industry it serves, and that's why the world is glad that the company exists, then people who create clarity and structure and efficiency and right will do very well fulfilling that role. Yep, absolutely. So that's, that's the first thing. And then building around that almost like a nesting doll. That's the innermost nesting doll of a company's health is the role. And again, it's different from mission because mission describes supply, role supply, role describes where demand intersects with supply. Right. The next thing, the next doll you can kind of encase that doll inside of is what I call your culture of production or your culture in the work. Every company has two cultures. There's a culture in the work and there's a culture around the work. The culture around the work is the colorful bicycles, the beer, renting out the movie theater, no Fridays in the summer. It is cultural stuff that makes us love the brand and love this company, irrespective of whether or not we like our job and our work and our colleagues and our meetings and our days. That's the culture in the work, which is creation of value, an understanding of quality, a minimum level of quality. It is understanding how a team creates intelligence. That's that Socratic approach of what am I missing that makes teams very smart so that they don't make dumb decisions. And then just general communication, does it feel awful or wonderful to become intelligent? Right. And most organizations don't, if, if I call the a department to help me out, answer a question. Hey, analytics team, can you give me this piece of data or an analytics team? Hey, product guy, I want to let you know what's going on over here. It doesn't feel like they've called the concierge at the four seasons when they make that call. It feels like they've called the mechanic at the back of a truck stop. Who's already three jobs behind. Right. Yeah. And that rudeness again, inflames the amygdala, which gives us full of norepinephrine, which makes us all 30% stupider. For so, the next six, eight or six to eight hours. Exactly. So that's the thing to wrap around it is that culture in the work, the relevant culture, not the irrelevant culture around the work. Because the culture around the work is a giant monster and it will suffocate the culture in the work as this culture around the work of harmony and, and, and harmony is not bad. So I don't want to come across as this kind of like fire breathing Jack Welchian guy, but harmony for its own sake reduces communication because we self-censor. If I'm worried about you, Jay, if you're like a, if you're irritable about something, or I, I know that you're sensitive about something, but I need to tell you information that you need to hear, or the group needs to hear. If I seek harmony in that communication for its own sake, I don't tell you the thing you need to hear. 
And that makes you and me both less intelligent. So harmony cultures and all this, all this culture around the work will start to eat communication first. And, once, and blow everything down. That's right. Once it eats communication, it eats intelligence. Once it eats intelligence, it eats quality. Because without intelligence, you can't have quality. Once it eats quality, you can't have value. And eventually it eats away value. And now you have this role. You understand why you exist, but you can't have any conversation to fulfill your role. And eventually you'll end up like IBM where you don't even know why you exist. <laughs> right. right. And it's not, there's a lot of people at IBM that are super smart, but man, they would benefit from understanding the role of that company. So they could aim all that incredible intellect at something. Yeah. Back to them all going the same direction. All the wheels point in the same direction, moving at the same speed towards a common goal. I mean, I get an Instagram ad that they have made a robot that tastes coffee. And I'm sure that's really valuable in the broader context of quantum computing and building human-sized androids that can be beef eaters so our coffee always tastes good and they make it for us and bring it to us. I'm sure there's a context for that. But you don't need to advertise to me that you have this little lime slice looking robot that tastes coffee. That means absolutely nothing to me other than you bragging that you make cool stuff that has no connection or direction to it whatsoever. Right. That's not where you want your company to end up. Yeah. I know we can talk about this stuff for probably days on end. <laughs> probably so. <laughs> and that's why... That's one of the things that I always, you know, enjoy chatting with you about is because we can just keep digging and digging and, and uncovering new ways to, to think about things, which is, uh, I think, enormously valuable. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we, uh, you know, you, you're a busy guy, I'm a busy guy, so we should probably wrap it up and maybe maybe resume the conversation another time. That sounds great. I appreciate yeah. it. So, so Evan, um, somebody's wanting to get in touch with you. What's the best way to do it? Uh, yeah, just drop my email address in the notes or something. It's just evan at core-sciences.com. Um, I'm sure the operations people on my team don't like the fact that I like to talk to people so much and share things for free, but I do. So I'd love to hear from people. <laughs> okay, that, no, we'll uh, link it up. What's going on uh, in their life and I really enjoy, I started this after selling that company to Adobe because I felt like it was something that would, you know, not to be Miss Teen USA here, but I felt like it was something that would make the world a better place. So I really do care about the people involved in that. And if uh, somebody wants to reach out, I hope they will. Yeah, great. Well, as, as uh, I've known you for, uh, I don't know how many years, you know, you've always, always been very generous with your, your time and your knowledge. And uh, so uh, he means it when he says it, folks. Send him a note. And um, Evan, thanks so much for taking some time and um, hope to see you soon. Likewise. Take care. Take care. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at ninelabs.com. 
Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said. Good design is good business.